We are going to be talking about baptism. And when I was first handed this topic about three weeks ago, I said that and getting my teeth fixed without Novocaine. Yeah. Um, part of it is, I mean, come on, whoever talked about baptism? One of the things I discovered is there is so much about it that is actually about real life. I was just amazed because I thought it was this funny little doctrine that we all fought over. Um, there is so much power in this. So I want to lead us through a Bible study and talk a little bit about what does this mean for our lives right now. But I thought we'd warm up with a few um, frequently asked questions on baptism. Um, there's a lot of debate, as I just said, and we're probably not going to solve that. So I don't know where your background is from, from maybe this is your first experience in church to whether you've been in another church group somewhere. But uh, I thought we'd at least start with a few of the basics because some of you are wondering, okay, what's he, how's he going to land on this one? What's he going to say about that issue? Ha! Who knows? Um, the first is, how should you be baptized? Well, I did a little Bible study, and um, what I discovered is if you look at the, the word itself in the original language in the Bible, it means this, to sprinkle. Some of you thinking, oh, I knew I was right. But wait, there's more. To pour. Another of you, now we know we're right. Then to immerse, to cleanse, and to wash. Ha, you're all right. <laughs> Which means we ain't going to solve that one. Bible's no help there. Okay, how about, well then, who, who could be baptized? Oh, this one even gets more confusing. So I started looking around in Scripture, and I discovered that Scripture neither commands nor forbids the baptism of infants, nor commands nor forbids the baptism of adults. Apparently, God will take them any way they're coming. So we ain't going to get any help there either because the Bible doesn't land. So all that 2,000 years worth of fighting, hmm, waste of time. Would have been better sitting back and kicking down a lemonade. Um, so I guess the big questions won't be solved, so let's go to something else. What does baptism actually do? Well, that's the question I want to hang on because that's the one that matters. And the rest of the message is going to deal with that. But to answer this question, we've got to do some backing up. Because if we don't back up and get the backstory, then it'll just kind of sound like, uh, I don't know, a little bit of static noise or maybe at, at worst even very confusing. So we're going to take a look at Jesus and Nicodemus. And if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 3. You just heard it read. We're going to hang there for a while. So let me kind of just review the story again. There's this guy named Nicodemus, and he is a Jewish leader, and he's a Pharisee. So we've got to know something about the Pharisees is they started out 150 years before Christ actually as a renewal group. And they were all about God's grace and God's love and God's life. And they were all against all the legalists. And one of the things emphasized was the transforming power of God. Well, 150 years later, something went wrong. They took a wrong turn and they turned into, yes, you guessed it, the church lady. They became the purity police. Moral purity, doctrinal purity, ethical purity, what you wear, what you ate, who you talk to, they were the purity police. And they felt that the job was to figure out who was in and make sure they stayed in and who was out and make sure they stayed out. So they were all about getting everything just correct, dotting T's, crossing I's, well, the other way around, but you know what I mean. So they show up. And it says, I love this, John says in verse 2 of chapter 3, after dark one evening, Nicodemus began to speak with Jesus. Now, I've always imagined that he's a bit of a slimer. He's been sent by the Pharisees to figure out who Jesus is and to see if he belongs in their club. So, how many of you have ever seen the film Jungle Book? Remember the snake? So, just think of the snake. So, it might be something like this. Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. 
And, and you know, that's, uh, he's buttering him up, but he's trying to set him up to see what he's going to do. Jesus will have none of it. So he cuts right to the chase and says, I tell you the truth, and I don't drag my asses out. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. And Jesus respond, and Nicodemus responds, essentially we could compact it into one word. Huh? Well, what's going on here? You must be born again even to see the kingdom of God. Well, we have to correct some misconceptions. Just as the Pharisees thought it was all about purity and all about keeping yourself separate from the bad people, we've kind of got some strange things about born again in the kingdom of God that we have to clean up. Well, what is it about it? Well, let's first of all talk about the kingdom of God. When the phrase kingdom of God is used in the New Testament, it isn't just talking about the afterlife. In fact, there's a, a set of word clusters that go on in the New Testament that talk about God's kingdom. Heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, God himself. All those words mean the same thing. Unfortunately, what happens in our ears often is when we hear you must be born again, otherwise you can't see the kingdom of God, what gets translated in many of our heads is, well, unless you pray a prayer, have a decision, or do something, then you won't go to heaven when you die. In other words... Unless you have this funny thing, whatever born again means, then you won't go to the good place when you'll die. You'll go to the bad place where you'll be fried forever. You know, are we done yet? No, you know. <laughs> and so we want to make sure we're born again so we go to the good place we die. Whatever that means, let's go have it so we'll go to the good place when we die. Well, that's partly true. But it, that's probably about percent of what Jesus is really talking about. He is talking about so much more. What does the kingdom of God look like? Well, we already said kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, heaven and God himself are all the same thing. So the first thing we discover about the kingdom of God, if you read around in the Bible, it's Jesus himself. Jesus is a walking, talking piece of real estate called heaven. You want to see what heaven looks like? Look at Jesus, look at what he says, and look how he treats people. That's heaven. Heaven is first and foremost God's love on you. God's truth for you. God's life for you. God's way for you. That's heaven. And if it's Jesus, you know what else it is? It's also Jesus' people. Jesus gathered around this most amazing crowd. If you want to look at who Jesus gathered around him, the word the Pharisees would have used, it's not the word Jesus would have used, but it's the word the Pharisees would have used, rejects. He gathered all the spit out, kicked out, shoved to the edges, beat up, slammed against the wall, screwed up, messed up, bad choice people, bad attitude people, suffering, struggling, broken people. And he said, hey, you want to come follow me? You want to come fish for people? You want to change people's lives? You want to be world changers? You want to be at the center of what everything is happening? You want to have dinner with me? And that's exactly what he did. And what happened is as these people stayed around Jesus, their lives began to change. And just as Jesus had treated them they begin to treat each other, and they begin to treat all those around them. But there's even more. God began to put their lives back together. Physical healings, left and right. Spiritual healing, emotional healing, relational healing. People who weren't talking to each other got reconciled. People who were supposed to have nothing to do with each other begin to work side by side with Jesus in patching up this mess we call the planet. Healing people one life at a time. That, folks, is the kingdom of God. And guess what? It lasts forever. Not even death can stop it. So Jesus is saying, you must be born again or else you will not even see what's going on right under your nose. 
You must be born again or you will never begin to figure out what life is truly about. You will never run into the author of life. You will lead the same broken life you have already. You'll lead a life of anxiety where you're running around anxiously checking who's in and who's out and making sure you're in and scared to death you might not be. If you would like to lay all that down, you need to be born again to even see that I'm giving it to you right now, right here. Well, that leads us to another question. What on earth does born again mean? Well, let's go back to the original language of the New Testament. It actually has two translations. And one of the things we know about the writer of the Gospel of John, John likes to write with a lot of twofers. You know, you go to the supermarket and get two for the price of one. That's what John likes to do with his words. He likes to give you two for the price of one. So born again actually has two meanings. Number one, born again. Number two, born from above. So one talks about how many times and the other talks from where? Well, by the way, above is another way of talking about the kingdom of God. So there we got a fifth word for the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, heaven, God, above. So what do we get going on here? Start with the again side. To be born again literally means to stop whatever you're doing. Drop it, lay it down. The anxiety, the secrets, the pain, the brokenness, you name whatever it is. The bad habits, the bad attitudes, the struggles, the addictions the bitterness, the anger, even the self-righteousness, even your religion, lay it down. Take out a clean sheet of paper and start over. But as we talked about before during breakfast, if you're going to start over, you want, you want to do the same thing over again because if you do the same thing over again and expect different results, we call that insanity. So if you're going to start over, you probably want to do it different. Well, that's the above side. Have a different starting point. If you're going to start over, where's your new starting point? And that is God himself. Begin not with your attitudes about yourself and, and the world around you. Begin not with what people have told you about who you are, but begin with who God says who you are. Begin with God's life for you, God's way for you, God's truth for you. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing right now. Literally, Jesus was walking around showing people a brand new starting point. Now, that means we start over and we start from the different starting point, which is God and his love and life and truth. There's another word for that in the Bible, by the way. It's, it's not a, a word we particularly like. Some of it is, again, we don't understand it. But that word is repentance. Now, some of you would think, well, that's not much fun. That's like getting your teeth pulled without Novocaine. Repentance literally means this. In the Old Testament, the word repentance means to get back on the path of life. In the New Testament, it means to change your mind about things and see them as they truly are. Well, that's all wrapped up in that word born again. Start from a different place, and that different place is the path of life which comes from the author who gave us that path of life, God himself. Suddenly, that's a bit different. So if we pull that together, what do we get? We get start over. Start from a brand new place. Think differently about life. Think differently about yourself. And there you will discover the kingdom of God right under your nose, and not even death can stop it. Well, what on earth does all this have to do with baptism? That's what we're supposed to be talking about, right? Well, we probably ought to get there, so let's turn now to Matthew 3, verses 1 through 6. And I don't know what page that is, but it's a little bit before John, by four books. Here we get. This is a story about John the Baptist. In those days, John the baptizer came to the Judean wilderness and he began preaching. 
And his message was repent of your sins and turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is right here. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He has a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Clear the road for him. Now John's clothes were woven with coarse camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Why are all these people getting baptized? Well, what on earth was baptism for the first century folks? This is really important because if we're going to ask what baptism means, we've got to ask what baptism meant. What did it mean? When John said, get baptized, what did the folks in the first century hear? Well, baptism had two uses back then. Number one, it was how Gentiles became Jews. Now, that didn't happen very often because the purity police were so picky about who got in, very few people ever even tried to get in. It was almost impossible. But when somebody was real brave and real crazy and tried to get in and fulfilled the checklist of the Pharisees, then they baptized him. But there's another use that was much more common is Jews baptized themselves when they wanted to recommit their lives to God. When they wanted to say, Lord, I cannot handle my life anymore. I know I'm your child, but I have wandered away and I want to come back. They went and got baptized. Now, why would they do that? Why would they use baptism as a way to renew their relationship with God, to turn from their own broken lifestyles and to surrender to God's life? Well, to that we've got to go way back in the book of Exodus. Don't bother turning there. I'm going to go real fast. Here we go. God's people are in real trouble. They're in Egypt, and Pharaoh has decided he wants to wipe them all out. He's been killing off their baby boys already, and he wants to take them all out. So God raises up this crazy dude named Moses, who gets off to a pretty bad start by murdering somebody, just to show that God can use anybody. So God sends him to 40 years of character school, sends him back to Egypt, and he goes and says like Ferris Bueller, let my people go. Except he didn't say what was the other guy's name, but at any rate, it was Israel. And Pharaoh said, nothing doing. So God comes in and he says, you want to bet? And 10 plagues later, Pharaoh's letting the people go. And off they are, marching over a million of them out of the empire of Egypt, out of slavery, out of certain death, and towards God's freedom for them. Except there's one problem. There's this little thing called the Red Sea. And here they are, stuck with this big, huge body of the water the size of Lake Michigan on one side. And right behind him, well, Pharaoh's had a change of heart and he's sending his big old honking military to wipe them out after all. What's God going to do? Well, God says, Moses, go in there and basically watch what I'm going to do. So Moses walks up to the sea, sticks his staff in the water, and if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you know what's going to happen next. Water parts. God's people go through the Red Sea all the way to the other side into the land of freedom. Pharaoh's army is dumb enough to follow him. God says, ah, party's over, boys. Water collapses on top of the army, wipes them completely out, and there you are, score one for God. And in a moment, God's people, because they went through the Red Sea, have been rescued, rescued from Egypt and certain death and destruction. In fact, they've been literally cut off from any threat of Pharaoh and Egypt. And here they are, a new people of the promise, on a journey with God into brand new life. 
So when a Jew of the first century got baptized or a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, literally by being baptized, they were going through the Red Sea away from whatever was holding them from God's love and life for them, away from their own personal Egypt, from certain death, from their broken, destructive lifestyles and everything around them that would try to destroy them and completely cut off from that and then on a brand new journey into freedom and a life God had for them. And they were making that journey up close and personal saying, I want to be a person of freedom. I want to walk away from whatever Egypt is holding me back from a new life. Out of slavery and into freedom. That was baptism. And so the way that God's people were repenting when John called them to that, to prepare for the coming of God's kingdom in a brand new way, they got baptized. It was baptism It was in this baptism that the people were making the commitment to start over and live their lives in a brand new way, the way of God's kingdom. Let me quote some more. Here's some interesting passages about baptism. This comes from Romans 6, verse 4. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it. He takes the Exodus story and puts it in a slightly different way, but it says the same thing. Therefore, we have been buried with Christ by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. And one, just another way of talking from the journey of slavery into freedom. Then we head to 1 Peter 3.21. And you want to, might want to mark this one because this is the most shocking verse in the Bible if you were raised Pentecostal or Baptist. Here it comes. Don't shoot the messenger. This is in the Bible. Peter is very blunt about baptism. He sets this up by talking about the flood when God flooded the world to renew it. Notice, if you read the story, God did not flood the world to get revenge on people but to, to renew it so the world would not collapse into destruction. That's something about God's discipline is that he's never getting revenge on you. He's simply trying to rescue you from your own self-destruction. And so that's what he did with the world. And he saved then eight people through the flood so that the world would begin again. And then Peter says this in 321, And the water of the flood points to baptism, which now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, don't shoot the messenger. That's in the Bible. It doesn't say... There, this is such an explosive verse that one Bible translation said this, and now this water points to baptism which shows that you have been saved. But Bible scholars went naughty, naughty. Even the Baptist Bible scholars said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. That's not what the language says. It says baptism saves you. Now hold that thought. I'm not finished with it. So I got some questions that might come out of that because even the, the New Testament writers understood baptism as a new kind of exodus an event where God offered forgiveness and freedom from our sins and a forever friendship with Him and a new way of living. So you might be asking, well, wait a second, I accepted Christ before I was baptized. That Does that mean I really wasn't saved? Or what about my unbaptized children? I was raised in a church where we didn't baptize babies. Were they at risk of hellfire all these years? Here's what the Bible says. Baptism is a place where God have, offers salvation, not the only place. In fact, Paul also says that faith is a place. In fact, baptism without faith ain't baptism. Let me give you some other places. God might call you into his kingdom, call you to a new life with him through the preaching of the word. He might save you through reading the Bible. You know why small groups are so important? Because sometimes people are saved there. What we discover in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, is that there are people who get saved and then they get baptized. There are people who get baptized and then they get saved. And there are people who get saved through baptism. God apparently doesn't care about the mechanics. There is one thing I will say, though, this, and I want to be crystal clear. Anybody who teaches that baptism is necessary for for salvation 
They are teaching garbage. That is a false teaching. It is very, very important because when we start talking about what you got to do to get God to like you, we are right back to the purity police. And when someone says, well, if you didn't have the waters thrown on you, well, too bad, you're going to hell. The Bible never goes there. The Bible's got all kinds of windows where God showers his salvation, reading scripture, hearing the preaching of the word, hearing someone talk about Jesus, getting baptized, receiving the Lord's Supper. All these are God encounter places where God wants to change your life over and over and over again. And it's really important that we make that crystal clear that we're not talking about some magic formula. So here's the bottom line. God is not looking for ways to keep people out of heaven. God wants heaven crowded, and he'll reach you in all kinds of ways. He has an open-door policy, and unlike the Pharisees, he does not have a closed-door policy. This is so important for us to understand. Let me tell you about my own story. I was baptized 12 days old as a little baby at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church. Well, and then I was baptized again when I was 14 at First Baptist Church, Coast Mesa, California. So I got it both ways coming. But you know what's really funny is I wandered away. And, you know, I could, you know, I, it was, I wandered away really weird. I wandered away by getting too much religion. I became a Pharisee. Because deep down inside, I didn't believe God loved me. So I thought if I could climb up the ladder and look really good, then he might. So I started trying, and I failed miserably. So I thought if you can't do it, fake it. So I became the church lady, except I didn't wear a skirt. <laughs> and I ran around... And I was the guy in the youth group who was making sure everybody else measured up, and of course they didn't because only I could. And then all of a sudden, God ran me headlong into grace and said, you know, you could lay that all down. You could lay that all down. Because while you weren't looking, I loved you and died for you. And what you don't know is you don't have to climb the ladder to win my approval. I already came down. Like when you were 12 days old and had nothing to say about it, I was loving on you. And when you were 14 and you didn't know quite what you're doing, I was loving on you. And every time you've heard the word, I've been loving on you. And every time you've been at my table, I've been loving on you. And I want you to know that you don't have, you don't have to try so hard. In fact, you can give it up trying. Just let go. And I think that's what he says, whether you hear the word in the preached or in scripture or in baptism or communion or when someone tells you about the love of Jesus. All those places he's saying... Oh, before you were even born, I had you in mind. And even when you were running away as hard as you could, in any way you could, I had you in mind. In fact, I was chasing you, and I'll never give up on you. Come on, join me. So how do we pull that together? Well, there's a couple, there's a couple dishes we need to avoid. Number one we've already talked to is, is, there's, is um, some people believe that baptism doesn't do anything at all, that all it is is something we've got to do because Jesus told us, and he did tell us to do so. But we've already seen the Bible doesn't let us go there, that something amazing does happen in baptism, that God does in baptism offer us forgiveness of sins, a new life with him, and a forever friendship. We know that. But here's the one I think we're in bigger danger of, is that's sometimes people think baptism is like this magic ticket to the afterlife. And it goes kind of like, like this. I'm going to start with Martin Luther, who was just... You've got to know something about Martin Luther. The founder of the Lutheran movement was bipolar depressive. I mean... He, he should have had whatever they make now. I mean, the guy was just really struggling with stuff. And, and one day, when, when the voices were just coming at him, 
he took this big old inkwell, and these voices were saying, just quit, Martin Luther, whatever you're doing. Just why bother with this Reformation thing? Just give up. Why bother following me? Why bother struggling to, to find grace? Just give up. Because you know God can't stand you. Neither can anybody else. What makes you think God loves you? And Luther took a big old inkwell and he threw it against the wall. You can still see it in the room where he did it. And he said, back off because I have been baptized and I am Christ and he is mine and he has called me to a new life and I am never letting go of that and I don't care what struggle comes to my way. I know that God has got me and he will never let me out of his hands. And that's how he saw his baptism. Unfortunately, a lot of people in the 21st century when God's voice comes to them and says, you know, I've got a brand new life for you. I've got a brand new way of seeing the world. A forever friendship that'll change you forever. A lot of times we'll say, back off, God. I don't need to do what you tell you because I've been baptized and you've got to let me into heaven when I die. So back off. And then we throw usually something or at least give God a gesture of some kind. And we have suddenly used baptism as a way to insulate ourselves from God. Now you might have said, well, I never did that. Well, you know how I did it? I said, back off, God. I made a decision for Christ so I can do anything I want because I am born again. And God said, really? Really? And in both cases, whether we've made a decision for Christ or gotten baptized, we've treated it like magic, like it's this little credit card we got that now God's got to make good on it. And God says, oh, that's so small. Of course I love you. You don't have to make me love you. The Bible says, well, we were still in rebellion against God. Christ died for us. You can't make him change his mind about that. But he's got this new life. Why are you resisting? Why would you take something like baptism and use it in a way to resist the new life baptism offers? Why would you do that with your decision for Christ? Why would you do that? Because he's already decided for you. Let's close by taking a look at Romans 6, and this will tell us a lot of what's really going on here. Whether you prayed the prayer or made a decision, whether you encountered God in preaching or baptism or communion or reading your Bible, Romans 6 is for you. Paul is talking about this very thing because some of his opponents are saying, well, you know, Paul teaches that if you just have faith and get baptized, then you can party your way into heaven. And Paul says, what are we then to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace would abound? Kind of like nice gig if you can get it. And he says literally, heck no. That's the Greek word for it. How can we die? Some people are going, well, wait a second. Well, it, 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 it's pretty close. So how can we who died to sin go on living? Listen to this. How can we who died go on to sin living in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been buried with Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried by baptism into his death. And what's the whole point? So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, just as he now has death behind him, just as he now knows the last word is not circumstances, so too we would walk in that same newness of life. Here's another way of putting it. In Christ, he has opened the prison door of whatever prison you've been stuck in all your life. He has set you free. Why are you staying in that prison of your fear, of your guilt, of your secrets, of your bitterness, of your habits, of your attitudes? Why are you insisting on remaining in Egypt where you know Pharaoh will kill you? Come join us. Come through the Red Sea. Come to the land of freedom. And don't worry about how deep those waters are. I will take you through them. I will take you through them. 
The kingdom of God starts now. You do not have to wait when you die. God's love starts now. His forever friendship starts now. His new life starts now. His, the new community of his people right here starts now. Could you feel it in the worship? Why do you want to stay in Egypt? I want to give you some things as we close that would help. Notice I never said it was wrong to make a decision for Christ or get baptized. Those are really good things. We Christians should make lots of decisions, including perhaps this one. Maybe it's time to make a decision that all this stuff is really true for you. And maybe it's time to create space for God, to begin to talk to Him, to begin to get into the book and read about what He said, about who He is and who we are and His life for us. To get into community with small people, as John was talking about, where you can discover that it's safe enough to discover God's grace. Maybe to put some feet to faith. One of the greatest ways to discover this stuff is really true is to try it out. You've been talking about being a world-class neighbor. That's one of the places to start exercising God's character in your life. But maybe the first thing is just to get honest with God. And I want to challenge you with this as we close. Maybe this afternoon, someplace in a safe place, just come clean with God. Just come clean with God. Get on the same page. Say, God, I've been trying so hard to get you to love me, and I am an utter failure. I fake it really well, and nobody knows this. Or maybe my life is falling apart and I can't believe anybody could put it together, maybe even you. But I've heard you can. I've heard you could save me from my hypocrisy. I've heard you can save me from my addiction. I've heard you can save me from whatever it is, my secrets, my pain, what someone did to me when I was 10. And he's just waiting to make good on it. He's just waiting to, to raise you to new life. to surround you with his kingdom and to let you know that you've been created on purpose, for a purpose, very good and in love. And no one can stop his destiny for you because we have been buried with him in baptism and raised to him to this brand new life. And that's his invitation today. Let's pray.